Father, please use this time to speak directly to our hearts. Breathe on us by your Holy Spirit through your word. We pray that you would revive sleepy and bound up hearts. Set us free to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Good morning, Incarnation. I love you. Um, that didn't have anything to do with the sermon. Well, it kind of does. <laughs> I mean, it should. Um, you may have guessed from our scripture readings um, this morning that we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is this, it's this sacred meal that Jesus established with his earliest followers. And it's really been the central act of Christian worship ever since. It's, 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 the, it's been the centerpiece as the church gathers to worship. The Lord's Supper has been at the center. Please turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23. Somebody can call out a page number. 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 23. What's that? 958. All right. The New, the, the New Testament records that less than two dozen years after Jesus' death and resurrection... There were already disciples of Jesus gathering every Sunday, which is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, to celebrate the Lord's Supper up and down the entire Mediterranean world. So the Apostle Paul could write to this young church in Corinth and say here in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. In other words, this, this supper was not originated with Paul, was it? It was originated with the Lord Jesus, and he could, he could point back. He says, it stretches back further than what I taught you, right? To the beginning of the movement that Jesus started. He says that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, the, the Greek literally says, when he had Eucharisted, right? He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Jesus was interpreting it, wasn't he? He was saying that what, what, what was prophesied about in Jeremiah 31 is happening now. It's this new covenant whereby our sins would be remembered no more. Whereby all of God's people would be given the Spirit of God. And Jesus said, Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. Paul is quoting the words of Christ here, what's called the words of institution. The Lord's Supper, it, it goes by many names. It's also referred to as Holy Communion, because we're communing with God, we're communing with the Holy One of God. It's been called the breaking of bread, it's this fellowship meal, it's the sacrament of His body and blood. Or as Paul referred to it in this passage we just read, uh, in the Greek it's called the Eucharist which just simply means thanksgiving, or it's an expression of gratitude for the grace of God. But of course, all these words can be a little bit confusing, can't they? I still remember I was at a Bible study um, one time, and a whole bunch of the Christians there were speaking Christianese to one another. And uh, they didn't, we, you know, we didn't really realize that there was somebody there who didn't really know what we were talking about. So we were all talking about the Eucharist. And... Um, this one guy, it was his first night there, he goes, uh, excuse me, um, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> what is the Eucharist? And uh, we said, oh, um, 
it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's the Lord's Supper. And he said, I still don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> we said, I, I, well, you know, Jesus, he, he had this supper with his disciples. You know, it's, sometimes it's called communion. And he said, I still don't know what you're talking about. Now, the cool thing is, is that guy continued to come to Bible study. And I remember it was like two or three months later. He was like explaining to somebody else who was new at Bible study. No, you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian because it says in Galatians, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wow, this guy's come a long way in three months, you know. Um, I think, uh, I, I, and it's a funny story, but I'm sure that, that, that my friend was not the first person to be confused by Christianese, right? But it's not just the words that are confusing, right? The church has spilled a ton of ink down through the ages trying to describe exactly what's going on at the Lord's Supper. Churches have actually divided over this issue, haven't they? The Roman Catholic Church tends to, uh, tends to have a view of the Eucharist, which is, which is more physical. It's a spiritual thing for them too, but it's like a physical thing is going on here, and you're physically eating the body, the flesh of, of Jesus uh, on the other hand, you have the Anabaptists who kind of just viewed it as just a purely symbolic act, right? Um, and then you have the Anglican Church who um, uh, characteristically haven't, haven't liked to define their position exactly. Um, they just call it real presence. <laughs> they're like, the Lord Jesus is really present. And you're like, how? And they're like, oh, we don't really want to explain it. <laughs> it has something to do with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> One of the problems, I think, with these debates is, uh, is that theologians have often gotten in trouble because they've gone beyond what the scriptures say. They haven't necessarily contradicted the scriptures, but they're offering oftentimes a far more nuanced, they're offering a lot more specificity than the scriptures offer. And if you're like me, then after a few minutes of that, you start to get itchy for some Bible words, <laughs> right? Um, so that's what we're going to try to focus on this morning. We're going to look at three words that can help us remember the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And all of them come from 1 Corinthians. If you notice, we had three readings from 1 Corinthians this morning. And they all start with the letter P. Ah. Oh my goodness. This was a preset sermon by the Apostle Paul here. <laughs> I mean, he didn't know that we were going to translate them into the letter P, but, you know. So here they are, all right? Passover, participation, proclamation. Can we say that together? Passover, participation, proclamation. If we can remember these three words, then I think we'll know what's essential to know about the Lord's Supper. It's a celebration of Christ as our ultimate Passover. It's a participation in Christ. It's a proclamation of the gospel. Would you turn with me to Luke 22, verses 1 through 23? And we see here um, that the Lord's Supper was first and foremost a Passover meal. <coughs> this passage is all about Jesus making preparations to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, with his closest friends. The Passover meal was, um, of course, and is a Jewish celebration which commemorated their freedom from slavery under Pharaoh during the time of Moses. When God was sending his plagues upon Egypt, he instructed the Jewish people to, uh, to kill a male lamb, an unblemished lamb. It had to be unblemished. And to put some of its blood over their doorposts. They were to 
put some on there, and they were told that the angel of death would pass over them, would not visit their house. That's where we get the name Passover. So the Lord says in Exodus 12, 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall befall you. And also the Jewish people, as you see, were told to eat the lamb. They were given very specific instructions about that, weren't, weren't they? they? They ate the lamb along with this unleavened bread. Why was it unleavened? Because they didn't have time to let the leaven work through the lump of dough. And so this, this final meal in Egypt provided them the sustenance they needed to flee from the wrath of Pharaoh through the Red Sea and on to meet with the Lord at Mount Sinai. And to put it simply... Without the Passover, there was no Judaism. There was no covenant with Yahweh. The Jewish people would have never been a people. So I think it's, it's hard for us to understand just how significant the Passover was for the Jewish people, especially during the time of Jesus. But if you can kind of think of it sort of like, um, like if you took Christmas and Easter and New Year's and sort of stack them on top of one another in terms of the significance that it, that it tends to have to us, you'll probably begin to get a sense of it. The synagogues, they spent a whole month teaching about the Passover and teaching about the Exodus leading up to the Lord's Supper. And technically speaking, the Passover was only the first day of this week-long festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And man, I got to tell you, Jerusalem was bursting and is bursting today at the time of the Passover. Scholars have estimated that in the late first century, as many as 2.7 million pilgrims flooded into Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. So to put that into perspective, that's, about, that's roughly the same size as the population of Miami-Dade County. In the state of Florida. So imagine the population of Miami-Dade County flooding into Jerusalem during the Passover. I mean, it's, it's an, actually a little city. And you can begin to get a sense of how these temple courts were bursting. So when Jesus went riding in on a donkey, and when he cleared out the money changers, and when he was te teaching openly in the temple courts, there would have been these huge crowds everywhere you turned. I mean, it was like spiritual Woodstock. <laughs> but as hugely significant as the Passover had been for over 1,300 years leading up to this time of Christ, Luke wants us to know, he wants us to know already, that there's never been a Passover like the one he was about to tell, you about, tell us about. <laughs> he mentions the feast right away here in verse 1. But as all of us, uh, but excuse me, but as all of Jerusalem was preparing to celebrate and getting ready to slaughter their unblemished lambs, what are the chief priests and scribes focused on in verse two? What are they focused on? What's that? Yeah, they're making plans to put Jesus to death, right? Now notice how the sweet, the the the, the scene. It's almost like Luke is this like. You know, beautiful artistic movie director. It switches back and forth to preparation for the Passover and then their preparations to kill Jesus. And then Jesus' preparations and he eats the Passover meal with his disciples. 
And then it talks about how Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas, right? It's kind of going back and forth. And, and so it's, it's, it's kind of like if you think of it like a movie or a TV show where it keeps switching back and forth between these two scenes that you think have nothing to do with each other. And what's the director saying? He's saying, I want you to hold both these things together as you're watching. I want you to hold, I want these, you to interpret these things together. They mutually interpret one another. Mm-hmm. And what was the deeper meaning that Jesus was trying to get his readers to grasp? That Jesus is the true Passover lamb. He's the perfect fulfillment of everything the Passover stood for. Instead of an unblemished male lamb, we're given the sinless lamb of God. The son of God, the lamb of God. Instead of being saved from Pharaoh, we're saved and rescued from slavery to Satan. Instead of the blood of the lamb serving as a substitute for the sons of Israel, the blood of Jesus would serve as a substitute for the sins of the whole world. And now, instead of being just physically nourished by this lamb that they ate, we are spiritually nourished by the body of Christ which is broken for us. And so in this way, we see that the Passover interprets the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper interprets the cross. By partaking of the Passover, the Israelites entered into the reality of their forefathers. And at the Lord's Supper, we enter into the reality of our eternal rescue at Calvary. In Luke 9.31, if you remember, we talked about how Jesus set his face like flint to Jerusalem. Right, all the way back in Luke chapter 9, he's already kind of dead set. He's going to go to Jerusalem. And we learn in the Transfiguration, um, they're talking about the exodus that Jesus would accomplish in Jerusalem. That's actually the word that's used. Um, The exodus that he was about to accomplish. Well, this is it. This is the greater exodus that was being accomplished through Jesus. As the Apostle Paul would go on to say in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This This is something we say during our Eucharistic liturgy every week. Do you notice that? Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Of of course, we still celebrate with this unleavened bread, don't we? Mm -hmm. Through the Lord's Supper, we learn that Christ is our Passover. He's our Passover. That's the first P. And isn't it a beautiful thing um, how all these images in Scripture just like point in this like... I mean, unbelievably magnificent way to the Lord Jesus, right? I mean, we could not have planned this thing. I still remember one time I was working on a roof for Habitat for Humanity. It was like, you know, something we needed to do for college credit. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, don't, don't impute too much, you know, holiness to me. And, uh, unless you're doing it through Jesus. No, I'm sorry. Uh, so we're, we're up on this roof, and... Uh, and these people are arguing because this one person is like, man, Christianity is stupid, the Bible is dumb, or whatever. And I remember this Jamaican guy that was up on the roof, and he said, he says that he answered this person, I tell you that book was written by no man. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think it's, it's, it's in scenes like this that we understand yeah. what he was talking about, right? Because, I mean, 
You could put Shakespeare and Hemingway and Faulkner in a room or in a blender and blend them up, and they could not have come up with this stuff, right? And this wasn't just written by one person. This was written by dozens of authors over the course of thousands of years. I mean, the Bible isn't a book. It's a library of books. And yet somehow there's this cohesive message that beautifully points to the Lord Jesus. It's amazing. The Lord Jesus is our Passover lamb. Okay, so moving on. The Lord's Supper is a participation in Christ. P, that's the second P. It's a participation. And I think out of each of these three P's, this is the one we're most likely to miss. But ironically, it's the one that the scriptures speak about the most. Um, Paul's favorite phrase was that we were in Christ. We are in Christ. Our lives are hidden with God in Christ. We are baptized into Christ. Romans 6, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, that the Eucharist is a participation in the body and in the blood of Christ. Now, it's not necessarily the case that we don't know these verses. That's not why we don't do business with them. It's that they sound so mysterious to our modern ears, don't they? I mean, we don't have a category for this kind of language. What does it mean when the New Testament puts it, says over and over again that we are in Christ? What does it mean that the Lord's Supper is a participation in the body of Christ? I mean, the scriptures try to explain this through a dozen different images. You know, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Right? The church is called the body and Jesus is the head and we're the members. The church, is, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're building blocks of a new temple, and Christ is the chief cornerstone. Again, the church is the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom who longs for union with his bride. Notice that all these images beat the drum of union with Christ. These images of the church are images of our union with Christ. We are in Christ. He's in us. That means that through his death on the cross and the gift of the Spirit, our lives have been somehow mysteriously fused with the life of the triune God. As Jesus would go on to tell his disciples, right after he celebrates the Lord's Supper with them in the Gospel of John, he says, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I mean, it's a good thing Jesus said it. Otherwise, we might think it's heresy. If we are in Christ, if we've been caught up into the life of God, then it has to do with our very being. It's not just a feeling. Right? It's not just a sociological kind of, you know, anthropological thing that we experience, right? I remember, um, you guys remember this movie in the 90s called Phenomenon with John Travolta? He's like this kind of normal mechanic guy, and he sees this light, and then all of a sudden he becomes this like uber genius. And he's able to like move things with his mind, but he's also like this good guy. And, and he, um, he gets to know this single mother and her children, and, and it's like right as, they're, right as they're getting close to one another, he finds out, spoiler alert, I know that you guys were all about to watch Phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> He finds out that, that, um, that this, this brain tumor is, is, is leading to his death. 
that he's got this tumor. And it's making him smart, but it's leading him to his death. And when the children find out about this, they're really sad, of course, because he'd been getting close with them. And, um, and so there's this really beautiful scene where John Travolta says, okay, so he takes this apple and he says, all right, you know, he takes a bite out of it and he says, I want both of you to take a big bite out of this. And so they both take, you know, ah, you know, the, the little boy and the little girl take a real big bite of the apple. And he says, now the energy that's in this apple, you know, it, that's being translated to our bodies, you know, it's in all of us now. And so there, there's a sense in which I'll always be with you. Right? And it's, it's a very beautiful scene. It's, it's not that unlike what Paul says here in, in 1 Corinthians where he says, we are one body because we share in one loaf. Right? We're one body because we share in one loaf. But imagine if John Travolta were able to tell the kids, every time you eat this apple, the Spirit of God will communicate you to me and me to you. I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? remember one time I was talking to a, a non-Christian friend and we were talking about the Lord and uh, he said, you know, I've tried, you know, I've tried the Christian thing before, <laughs> you know, um, I'm not really that interested. I've tried it. Um, and I told him um, that being in Christ is not really something you can try out. Right? You're either in Christ or you're not. And as we started to talk about it, it sounded a little bit more interesting to him. But it's true, right? But being in Christ is not just about like believing certain things. I mean, it's not less than that, but it's not just about that. It's not just about behaving in a certain way, right? It's not just about e even just like making a decision to follow Jesus, right? It's, it's, not, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. Being a Christian, it's a participation of our very being, of our very fundamental identity with God Almighty. In a way that is probably best not to completely flesh out. We are reborn by the Spirit of God. We are new creations in Christ we are united with the Father through the Son and swept up into the life of the Trinity. So we might say, okay, that sounds pretty mysterious. <laughs> but what does this have to do with the sacraments? And according to the New Testament, it has a lot to do with it. The sacraments are a means and a meeting place for our oneness with Christ. They're a means and a meeting place. It's, it's a communion that's going on with our Creator. For example, in Galatians 3.27, Paul writes about baptism. All you who are baptized into Christ, notice the union language, have clothed yourself with Christ. We've taken His identity upon ourselves, right? And concerning the Eucharist, 1 Corinthians 10.15-17 says, I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not? I mean, this is just obvious stuff for Paul, right? I mean, the Greek, it implies, yes, of course. That's what, it, that's what it's implying here. He says, the bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of this one bread. Paul argues that in the same way, in this passage, we do spiritual harm. People do spiritual harm in, in, in acts of paganism, in acts of witchcraft, when they become participants with demons. And on the other hand, it does spiritual good for us to participate in the table of the Lord, for us to partake of these things. These don't sound like the words of someone who thinks it's all bare symbolism, does it? That's because Paul knows that there's powerful realities at work behind this rite. And the irony is that Christians today, most of us would feel like super weird and uncomfortable about like participating in any rite of witchcraft, right? And for good reason. But we wouldn't necessarily think that it's any, you know, that big of a deal to participate in the table of the Lord. The altar of the Lord. And let's not give the demons more credit than Christ. In fact, in the next chapter, Paul tells people that the reason why they're getting sick is because they're receiving the Eucharist in an unworthy manner. How is it unworthy? They're creating factions. They're excluding the poor. So there's a wrong way to receive Holy Communion. And there's also a right way. Again, Paul answers this question in various places. The right way is with self-examination, with gratitude, Eucharistio, with sincerity, and with faith in the gospel. Faith in the gospel of Jesus. And that leads us to our third P word. The Lord's Supper has to do with the Passover. It's a participation in Christ. And finally, it's a proclamation of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But it's, it's kind of a different proclamation than we're used to, right? It's not just preaching. It's not just kind of verbal evangelism. Because in, 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 in preaching, the gospel is verbalized. But at the Lord's table, it's dramatized. There's a sense in which the Lord's Supper interprets the truths of the death of Christ in a more fundamental way. It, it, it meets us in a more fundamental way than theology ever could. N.T. Wright says this, When Jesus wanted to give his followers then and now a way of understanding what was about to happen to him on the cross, he didn't teach them a theory. He didn't teach them a theory of atonement, as helpful as those can be. I love theories of atonement, by the way. <laughs> but he says he gave them an act to perform. And, and, and more specifically, he gave them a meal to share. And it's a meal that speaks volumes more than any theory ever could. Mm -hmm. This meal proclaims the gospel. In light of this, let's listen afresh to the words that Jesus spoke at the Last Supper. I mean, this is before he died on the cross. Listen to him. The Lord Jesus, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, what did he do? He broke it. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this 
and remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after he had eaten. He said, this is the cup that's poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. So our Lord Jesus, he understood we're embodied creatures, right? We need physical acts of remembrance. I don't want to just tell my wife I love her. I want to kiss. And so Jesus, he instituted the breaking of bread and the pouring out of wine to be at the heart of the Christian community. It's a church constituting act, just like the Passover was an Israel constituting act. And it was not only mysterious, it was ingenious. Because as long as the church celebrated this feast, as long as there was somebody standing up front saying that Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body, snap, that was broken for you. This is my blood that was poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The church, as wacky as our theology could have ever gotten, would never understand, would, we'd never totally forget the gospel, right? It would, still be, it would still be communicated somehow to the people who were sitting there, to the people who were standing there, to the people who were eating this bread, to the people who were drinking of this cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, so let's summarize a little bit and draw to a close. We have these three words, Passover, participation, proclamation. And we said, if you remember these words, you'll remember what we need to know about the Lord's Supper. And Jesus, I want to close with this. Um, if you look down at your passage, Jesus tells his disciples in verse 15 that he earnestly desired to eat this Passover with them before he suffered. I mean, isn't that a beautiful verse? I mean, Jesus is, it, it, it shows what he most wants, right? These are his good friends. These are his good friends at earth. He said, man, I just want to get into a quiet room and, and I want to have this time with you, right? And that's, that's the same for us today. Jesus earnestly desires to meet with us at the Lord's table. Every day, he wants us to come. Every, every Sunday as we gather, the Lord wants us to come. He's eager to be with us, eager to meet with us. He's eager for us to remember that he's the true Passover lamb. That if we have his blood painted over the doorway of our heart, we will escape forever judgment. We will have a forever rescue. He's eager to participate with us. He's eager to, to have this act which, which, which you know, establishes, which, which uh, creates this connection point between he and us, this communion between us and God Almighty. He's eager for the gospel. He's eager for what he did to be proclaimed again. I think that's part of the reason why he was so eager. See, he, he wanted to, t this was God's plan before the foundation of the earth. He's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. And he was like, I finally get to show you what it's all about. Right? I finally get to explain it to you. I finally get to have this participation with you. 
that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.